0: to Radio Free Demos, and Nick Fan Podcast, broadcasting from a post Demos orbit on Voltaire Station. With me this week is Wines. Hi, Wines. Hello. So, ever since the con, this is like the first time we've had any time alone, <laughs> and all the other guys are gone. I think they're at some sort of Halloween party. Ashtar's dressing like a lizard, Whitey is dressing like a fox. So it's just you and me, and mm-hmm. I want to spend the next 45 minutes talking about Minutia. As usual. Okay. This is episode 58 of Radio Free Deimos, Blight Zones, and a sort of happy Halloween episode. So before we get started, I want to apologize. The Transcendent Technology podcasting equipment started leaking. I think it dribbled episodes one through seven into the lower two or three levels, so I'm genuinely sorry about that. I hope you haven't been
1: down there lately. Oh, I I thought that was the barbecue sauce containment unit. It is similarly
0: treacly and and thick. Uh, It's done something really horrible to the 20th century literature majors. They've all decided they want a podcast. (laughs) It's really terrible.
1: We've received messages from their spaceships. For a while, it came in as just a lot of jumbled noise.
0: So this week's episode is a topic that doesn't really get a lot of press in the world of HSD. Light zones are mentioned in one page in Volume 1 on page 64, and maybe two paragraphs in second edition, somewhere in the Transcendent Technology Malfunction section. So there's not been a lot of coverage to this topic, but I think it kind of fits the general ghost story. Oh, definitely. Cronenbergian horror.
1: It, it, it is the drippiest, most gelid of all holidays. so
0: it <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this, this particular idea is uniquely suited to the kind of the haunted house storyline for a number of reasons, which maybe I'll get into or we'll forget to. But the idea of blight Zones is definitely creating a bad place horror trope around something that maybe the PCs were familiar with at one point in time or simply a vile destination that no one wants to go to where they have to pull someone out for a rescue or something like that. Although the concept evolved significantly over the two editions and becomes more nightmarish as we get Hmm. closer to the year 703.
1: How come things don't get better with the uh, revisions? Is it one of those futures? I, I really think it is. I mean, we started
0: volume one with the, this very cheerful unreliable narrator, and it kind of went downhill ever since. It's
1: like the Harry Potter books. I, I may have referenced this before, but it reminds me of a, a short sci-fi story where these people had set up this machine that lets you enter alternate futures. Mm-hmm. That you could you pay your money, and then you could walk through one portal that would lead you to a idyllic future where eventually things would be a utopia, or you could go through another door and feel confident that the world would end as a horrible dystopia mm-hmm. the, the The punchline of again the very short story was that the guys who were operating it, it it was nonsense, it was just special effects they just made money did, did absolutely nothing, but they're just kind of wondering, why does everybody go through the dystopia door?
0: So, sort of a more real-world example of this exact same idea. (laughs) Slightly more real-world? Slightly more real-world. Steve Jackson Games uh, in Mm nomine* is a game of Angels and Demons and Heaven and Hell, but it's rather specifically not a game about Heaven. They describe it, they landscape it, they put some major landmarks in, but they just say that Heaven is a really boring place to role-play in. And Hell has much more interesting things going on. The cloak and dagger politics and et cetera is so much better than Eternal Bliss. So the concept of the Blight Zone has, as I said, evolved significantly over the two editions of the game, two and a half editions of the game. So we'll start with version one. Along with a great many other really interesting things about the world, uh, Blight Zones are tucked into kind of the lexicon local color section around page 50 or so. They're described as uh, sort of an industrial accident. I think it's kind of a dystopian horror company goes horribly wrong sort of thing. It's what happens when an attempt to make a bioprobe explodes from the inside out, causing the creature to grow like a foul skin along building surfaces. It's something that happens when TTI, when large TTI bioprobes collapse or when there's industrial sabotage. The biggest example they have is called the Venus intrusion, which is where three ships were sabotaged and collapsed on top of their production factory. And the result is still there many decades later. It's showing no signs of going away. And it's probably acting on these strange chemicals and transcendent technologies inside of it and databases to learn more and explore and expand. Hmm. In First Ed, this is really a corporate disaster, like an ecological catastrophe, not a supernatural horror. It's described as kind of rare, unnerving, hard to repair, long lasting... Maybe they regenerate because bio-probes can, or well, bio-ships can regenerate, mm-hmm. um, and the big ones can develop kind of internal sophisticated defenses that might melt you or whatever. The side effects it has are kind of empaths that bond with bio-ships might feel nervous and unsettled there. But it's not a threat. It's not a, certainly not a, uh existential threat. It's just kind of this bad PR disaster that happens, and then maybe the PCs have to go clean it up. Much more contained, much more defined by the rules, which describe it as having, you know, polyps and bloops and all the usual things you find in a bioprobe.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I, I remember, you a, a, a film Sparrow showed us once. No, oh dear. The yes. One set, set an abortion clinic, a nasty abortion clinic where they simply dump babies down the, the drain and the chemicals running down the drain mutated a baby and gave it huge powers. So it wrapped the entire abortion clinic in a uh, umbilical tentacle thing. Right. And then started aborting everyone inside of it. So kind of like that, right? No. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, not, not everything Sparrow shows you is necessarily <laughs> facts. Is, is that not based in fact? Oh, okay. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. So the worst you can really say about a first edition uh, Blight Zone is that it might freak you out if you're claustrophobic or have intense fears about being eaten alive by
1: aliens. Well, what's fear of mucus? Is there a name for that? This is totally worth looking at. But I brought it up. I, I can't complain. Well, I can delete the
0: pause. Oh, I know, I know. Um, yes, Uh, Blenophobia is fear of slime, and Mixophobia is fear of mucus. There we go. Well, now you know. So next week's episode. (laughs) So one of the big changes, I think, in HSD's lore that happens around the time of Sound and Silence is the game really starts to embrace its cosmic horror roots. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are kind of hinted at in First Ed, where it's kind of transhuman futurism dipped in Lovecraft sauce. But in Second Ed, beginning with Sound and Silence, it's really kind of marinated in Lovecraft sauce. We have multiple layered realities, cosmic giant vast things at the edge of what man can know that guard the world from, well, really protects the rest of the universe from soul, not the other way around. Entire races based on eating people's heads?
1: Yeah, one race, not multiple races. Well, that's one is enough. Yeah, but it's not multiple races, I mean. Entire race based on people eating people's heads. Yeah. But so those were run in First Ed as well, in fairness. Okay.
0: But the game does kind of drift more towards cosmic horror. The entire section on TTI and the way they really functionally destroyed the
1: universe accidentally really just
0: goes there a lot.
1: Right. So uh, first... I should point out, there, there is a difference between referencing that something horrible exists and providing it in character build form so that the players you least want playing that sort of thing will insist upon it. Yes, that's why there are rules for Black Spiral Dancers. Mm-hmm. I've only made three of them. you. The, oh, yeah, you do. <laughs> do. Yeah.
0: So a lot of the change from the old version of blight spots to the uh, blight zones, blight spots, blight zones, blight spot, <laughs> blight spots, are we going to buy your blight? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the changes to blight spots that happen are not so much maybe over the two years of chronological game time as just an evolution in the direction of the game itself and this is kind of I talk with Seva about this a little bit and he confirms this is more the vision of the game changing not some new expansion that and this sort of thing has happened before like the gradual threat of the pale men has been increasing over time and it's revealed that some of the things that went bump at the night in first did are actually these creatures and their story expands over time that is not the case with light spots they're just bad places and always have been Blazant.
1: light spots Blight spots?
0: Yeah. No, I, I just wrote, I just said the wrong thing.
1: Okay. Well, as a, a hyena, of course, I completely appreciate blight spots. Well, just spots in general.
0: Yeah. So
1: going on towards second edition,
0: blight spots become a mechanic, kind of, that crops up in the transcendental catastrophe malfunction table. Mm-hmm. Among other things that might trigger a role in this table, when you activate your TTI patented, normally this just lights a small flame that I can use to light a cigarette or something like that power, or the magical disintegration with a distance of two inches power. Uh, If you're doing this in an area that's saturated with high levels of weirdness or cool, or you've done it after a lot of people have done very similar things, it might spiral out of control. And that sort of spiraling can lead to a transcendent catastrophe. Mm -hmm. The results of these can range from nothing happened, which is highly unlikely and possibly impossible, to your face being horribly scarred and burned, to whispers bursting out of your chest and running all over the place, to you turning into some sort of transcendental monstrosity yourself and vanishing with the continuum, ending up in the deep, deep of black space, whatever, whatever, whatever. There's a lot of things that can happen if you fail your save and then roll 1d10 plus local difficulty. Mm -hmm. And the result of number nine is a blight spot. In second ed... This means that some hapless NPC drinks a Cronenberg potion and violently explodes, being applied in a thin film of horror, gradually growing and twisting the landscape around it over about a quarter mile radius. So rather like the Whispers, it's something that someone kind of violently becomes. There's not really a strong reason for this, except that it's a horrific element in the game. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't really understand how Transcendent technology works. But... Gradually over time, the forces of Hydra are learning how to explore and create and change biological entities, and perhaps this is some symptom of it. So one time, the cute girl that's sitting three tables away from you is chatting idly about the latest pulse celebrity. The next scene, she's a quarter-mile radius pool of horrors, slowly eating everything around everything, and is no
1: longer the creature you met before. What, What level of insurance covers that? I don't know if we've established there is insurance in this world. I mean, shouldn't they have insurance for transcendent stuff? I mean, it's not going to be cheap,
0: but... Well, maybe they don't want to admit that this happens. I don't know. It's slightly more common than a whisper attack, statistically, but only slightly. And then I guess you'd have adjusters coming
1: in and saying, no, that wasn't transcendent. She just exploded.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, it could have just been something she had. So worth noting in this new version, there's no mention of bioprobes, no mention of that sort of technology. This is just an event. So a lot of the trappings of it's tied to the limitations of a bioprobe, it's similar to that, are gone entirely. This is just something that happens, a cosmic disaster.
1: Mm-hmm. People who strayed where exploration codes said that they shouldn't. Well, rather more like Japanese horror, the
0: person that exploded may not have anything to do with it. This is possibly something that your implant did to them. They were just caught in the event and the weirdness nearby, and it manifested through them. Effectively, this is a, an adjacent world filled with strange polyps using some living creature as a gateway into this world, explosively so. After that, we might kind of think about what a Blight Zone looks like. Now, in First Ed, again, they were kind of defined as the same sort of stuff that you make a bioship out of, which is pretty horrible. I mean, there's a lot of weird suckers and things like that and strange polyps and chambers that open and close and eat things inside of them, vacuoles and what have you. In Second Ed, um, it's a little more unknowable. There's not really a lot of description there, just kind of... That the game master is encouraged to describe the limits of their reality as they see fit. And so it's a lot more open ended and a lot, and that's a good thing. I think it can be uh, awkward for storytellers to have to run things on the fly because you look this up and you can't, I mean, there's so little information on them. A blight spot happens. What is it? Well, you better guess. I think some comparisons from like Movie Land might be useful. Two, two films that kind of came to mind do you remember Creep Show? We saw it fairly recently. Hmm. Not springing to mind. It's an anthology film from, like 84 or so with a lot of shorts. Uh,
1: oh, is that the one with the, the the Howard Hughes and the Bugs?
0: Yeah, Howard Hughes okay, and the Bugs. That's yeah, the final yeah. one. Early on, there's one called The Lonesome Death of Geordie Verrill, which is a Stephen King short uh, based on weeds. Right. That, that, was, that was cute. That's, that's memorable and disgusting. Yeah, it really was. Uh, an asteroid comes in from the outer world of whatever and crashes, and it's filled with glowing green spoo. Which is all mutagens are glowing green spoo. Sure. The kind of Ernest P. whirl esque hick gets some on his fingers and within a couple of scenes he's sprouting lichen from his fingers. That ooze kind of spreads and the entire area around him starts like having these long grasses and he's gradually turning into sort of a swamp thing-esque mm-hmm. thing esque thing. Then he, like, takes a bath to get rid of the itching thing, and then he realizes that water makes the weeds grow. And, and he tries to blow his head off. Yeah, he you know, it succeeds. Well, he in, does. Yeah, right? he does blow his head off, but all that does is let the camera fall back to see these weeds spreading. And that story is loosely based on Lovecraft's The Color Out of Space, where a strange substance crashes to Earth and things start becoming gradually weirder as it gets on them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But it's not really an uncommon trope. The other one I can think of more recently
1: is Annihilation. Uh-huh. which we have, I think, fairly different opinions on that movie. Right. Yeah. To me, it's the Hobby Lobby f- flower section stapled to t- trees movie. Yeah. And there's a fair amount of truth in that. Uh, it's a recent film. If you haven't seen it, I think it's a
0: pretty good psychological horror film. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of wiki type articles say that it's an analogy for cancer. Uh, it's certainly not a science fiction film. Oh, oh, no, let's not have this discussion. It's definitely a horror film. Though, sure, sure. Um, as things can clearly only have one genre. The film is about life metastasizing and changing and twisting and being reflected in various prisms in strange ways. Mm-hmm. And I think that in the language of the movie, they describe, well, either in the movie or a critical article on the movie, I don't know. They describe the shimmer, which is the strange glowing wall around uh-huh. this enclosure, as a prism for DNA that distorts and transforms everything that falls within its boundaries. And there's a lot of kind of iterative things and images of people transformed into flowers Images of flowers transformed into people. I don't know. Uh-huh. Crocodile teeth. Uh, sure. Pe- people turned into kind
1: of gooey bas-relief graffiti. Yeah, that sort. Are of, you thinking of the Wiz again? Aren't you? No, no. I'm thinking of that movie. Remember the, the, the they find the character in the empty. Oh, like fused to the wall. Yeah, fused to the wall. That was, that was pretty pretty gross. I like that.
0: Yeah, it was. And then there was the screaming bear, which they call "Scream Bear" online. Yeah. So, uh, stupid trivia that I found out today, the visual effects director of Annihilation had recently worked on Paddington Bear. Okay. And Paddington is, you know, he's a very nice bear or Uh something like that. I think that's what he's specifically like. He's a very nice bear. And he's named after Paddington Station when he was found. Okay. There's another much less nice railroad station a couple of miles away in London called Homerton, which is seedy and kind of run down and a good place to get mugged. Okay. So the bear, the screen bear is actually, his name is Homerton Bear.
1: Okay, okay.
0: Useless bear trivia there. It's cute. But that's kind of a spread thin sort of thing because it's more of a mystery. It's not like an intense thing that you discover immediately. As the people move towards the center of the mystery, things get worse and weirder and Mm -hmm. survivability becomes lower and lower. Right. And at the center, they find kind of the heart of the mystery. And that's a more dispersed I feel like in first a first-ed blight zone, you're going into a place where you are seeing giant polyps and uh, you know that your life is on the line there. But this might be a better model for a second-ed one that's kind of in the process of spreading out from its original point of detonation. Uh-huh. I don't know. So Seb describes these blight spots as gates between worlds where something breaks in. Well, something about the location where they pop through makes them able to be more stable, able to maintain their existence outside mm-hmm. of, well... After they break through Presumably little gates like this open occasionally You might have some sort of entity that wanders through Or just the painful burn marks or whatever But in this particular set of circumstances Whatever it is that breaks through Finds a home Is able to expand and grow Oh, sorry Does Stranger Things count? Actually, yeah, I think so He said, uh, Seb mentioned Stranger Things Specifically describing um, his thoughts on this too. Okay. me So yeah, that's I think he called it incursion horror Okay. Okay. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. No, I don't. I don't actually know enough about Stranger Things to really say one way or the other. But uh-huh. it's like, aliens break through. Is that kind of
1: uh, that they, they, with technology, they open a gate to the other world, and things start coming through and making our world a little bit stranger and worse. That sounds about right. One thing that seems to be kind of consistent about the two
0: versions is that it seems like blight spots are intrinsically bound to structures. I mean, the descriptions of them are that the ooze clings to walls and ceilings and surfaces and things like that. Okay. And they're described in terms of like buildings and complexes that they take over. A small one from First Ed might be the size of a room or might fill a room that it took place in. But they seem to be bound to, I mean, this is a stretch I'm I'm inferring and kind of free associating, but they seem to be frequently tied to the concept of architecture. Okay. That's where you describe, of course, in this future, there's a lot of, like, large buildings, and maybe it's because I was just spending the last two weeks researching For, large buildings right. in HSD. But we're certainly not given any images of a blight spot that doesn't take place in a big building of some sort. Uh-huh. And it's not, maybe it's not entirely a stretch, because on the other side of the world, when the books discuss the near quill zones, these kind of alternate dimensions, they're close enough that we can kind of understand them, not so far as we used to be completely insane. Uh-huh. To get back to this world, you have to find a door, and a literal door, like with a door and a frame and things like that, maybe. Mm. So maybe there's some connection between the other worlds and our worlds that manifests itself in terms of buildings and structures and things like that. And I can go on about that, and I will, but not right this second.
1: Wait, with the Lochnar from Heavy Metal account?
0: Well, it's glowing in green. So, <laughs> so it must. <laughs> definitely alien energy of some sort, but it talks too much. Oh, okay. I don't think Blight Spots talk. They do create a sense of vague unease, but not mild disgust. But they
1: don't create actual full fledged narrators. No, no, okay. generally not.
0: One other idea that kind of that came into vogue with Sound and Silence is the idea of the FOEA, the FOE, FOA, FOA. I don't remember. But this is the organisms that were originally native to Europa. Okay. And they have some, some qualities that are shared with the big bio probes and the orcas and. Uh, presumably, blight, blight, presumably blight spots as well, which is that they can they have a, a strong level of telepathic, empathic presence. They mm-hmm. can talk to each other. And the orcas maybe are what triggers the mass suicides in Europa every seven or eight years or so. Uh, but they also have no real need for food. They presumably eat things because it's fun and they like to hear the screams. Hmm. I don't know. I'm making that up. Some of the bigger ones certainly do. Don't we all? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. But they can just kind of feed off of the ambient flow of energy that washes out of the other world. The orcas kind of channel it more than anything else. The owls as well. But there's this limitless sea of energy that can feed the bioprobes and the little three-eyed plankton in Europa's oceans and Mm -hmm. also light spots. So they can exist for quite some time drawing on this ambient energy and can operate... On physics that don't really work in our world unless you assume that infinite energy is being ported from an alternate reality. Okay. Which you can't not make that assumption. Maybe we should have a physicist on here to question it, hmm. but still. Again, there isn't very much on blight spots, and I kind of wanted to use our special time together without YT and Ashtar to expand on the idea. Sorry, I was trying to figure out if you were going to say something with that expression. Oh, I'm just giving you looks. Okay. Again, makes for very good podcasting.
1: That's <laughs> right.
0: A lot of transcendent technology is defined by a set number of glyphs or interactions. I think it's not much of a stretch to say that the various magical implants are each one tied to a glyph of some sort. The first glyph we met was echo, which was, I guess we can have all sorts of spoilers now if we want to. Silent Silence is over a year ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Echo was used to make the universe kind of reset itself. It's a glyph of looping time and bound and unbound infinities and alternate worlds and things like that. It may be the glyph most tied to the idea of dimensional travel, of parallel worlds and such. Mm -hmm. And it may also be what Hydra used to enter this world back in the day. Echo was both a symbol and an implant. So it's not a huge extrapolation to suggest that the other major transcendent technology powers are also glyphs as well. Uh, The next glyph that's named was Hydra. And that went really badly. That's a good one. Yeah. And Hydra was implanted in something once that, that was called owls. And hmm. they, they went really bad in a kind of Nova-like way. So uh, the association between the glyphs and the implants and the alternate worlds is pretty close mm-hmm. together, I think. And when you read through Sound and Silence towards the end, they talk about the... Uh, different alternate realities and each one of them is tied to a world as well. So if I'm going a little bit far afield from that, it's kind of tied to this idea that glyphs and worlds and things are all kind of bound together. So this in sound and silence, they have, I think six or seven alternate worlds, uh, each one of which is tied to like the transcendent technology implant that lets you disintegrate things or teleport or transform energy or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so they have this kind of doctor who like alternate world that's inspired by the ideas of that implant okay so i want to float the idea that a blight spot that was formed by overuse of perhaps the ethereal implant Mm -hmm. might have a strong tie to vesper the world that you can get to with that implant and so on and so forth and this blight spots are fairly rare but this might give some texture that makes them more appealing to say a ghost hunter type campaign okay or a way for pcs to enter these alternate worlds when they aren't Heavily laden with transcendent technology implants, Mm -hmm. Um, a way of suggesting a doorway to these alternate realms that kind of brings them closer and more in it, and lets you explore them in a different way. As a thought, but still kind of flavoring the Cronenberg world of the Light Spot. Mm -hmm. So we'll start with the not available PC's implant of Echo, and this is again the time travel implant. It's not about moving forwards and backwards in time. It's about skipping to alternate realities that are on different time
1: tracks. Okay. Uh, so it's not, not the one was it, which was invented in 2350 mm, and, and 2210. Yeah. No. Uh, in, interestingly, if you manage
0: to use Echo to travel, Echo is somehow moored to, I guess, Zero Cule is the world we're in, the basic world. And Echo is kind of moored to this in some way. So if you tried to use Echo to get to World War II era Earth... Mm-hmm. It would be World War II era Earth, but still with the like red shellac of the whisperwork spire and things like that. Hydra would not have stopped its activities. It would be in the same place it was before, hmm. even in 1950s world. So you're not going to the 50s. You're going to a version of the 50s along Hydra's timeline. Okay. That kind of makes sense. I don't know. Sure. It's not real time travel, though, is, uh-huh. is kind of where I'm going with that. So maybe in this kind of biohazard world inspired by... Uh, Echo, you might be dealing with lost in the labyrinth of polyps and splurges and flies. You might be dealing with echoes of a loved one that you lost some time ago, kind of ghost-like moving in and out. Mm -hmm. Or you might, in the occasional unbroken mirror, see a reflection of yourself from a future that you hadn't been to or an alternate path that you knew you you were going to take or not. Or see yourself with people that you'd lost a long time ago. It might be haunted by reminders of these alternate timelines. It might be a way of picking up like hints of prophecy from these far off worlds, glitches in the matrix, deja vu, that sort of thing. Little hints of being unmoored from time would typify this kind of realm. Okay. Uh, and if you've read your Lovecraft or Lovecraft adjacent authors, you might remember the Hounds of Tindalos. Have I talked about them before?
1: Um, not ringing a bell by name. It's not
0: technically Lovecraft, but it's in that mythology. Uh, these are the ideas of demonish things that hunt, that stalk in the corners of time. Okay. And they are attracted to time travelers in various ways. And many things are attracted to Echo users uh, like the Nephilim, the big monsters of the edge of the universe, mm-hmm. or Hydra itself. So the idea of guardians of time is kind of tied up here. The Hounds of Tindalos are, they're kind of... Weird, lizardy, attenuated, fourth dimensional things. And they specifically follow people that time travel too much. They're called hounds from their behavior, not their shape. Okay. One quirk about them, and this kind of ties into the idea of architecture again, is that they cannot enter an area that has uh, only oblique angles or rounded surfaces. They have to have acute angles. So hmm. you, have to have something, you have to have something tighter than the right angle to bring them into your space. Interesting. I just, it's a, yeah, the sort of strange geometries is an idea of tied to that sort of time travel, but it's also tied to Transcendent Technology, which is about echoes and patterns and things like that. Vesper is the first of the named near Quill realms. It's a kind of ghostly world of grey terrains and things like that, where people move out of sync with gravity in strange directions. It's a fairly beautiful and stark place. Very dry as well, because there's no water on this realm, uh, except that there are whispers that occur in rain and water and things like that. So whispers are water and hmm. that's how they move and they can pull water out of people and turn them into more whispers and things like that. But it's kind of a haunted realm. This is the ethereal implant that's about phasing through matter and such. Okay. So it's kind of descended from that idea. It's also kind of tied to the idea of falling and plummeting and just detachment from gravity. Like one way you enter this realm is to teleport out of a dream of falling or something along those general lines hmm. or Use the implant right when you're about to crash into the ground to escape it, and you might end up in this alternate realm. Blight spots tend to be like a shellac of horror over a realm, but maybe a Vesper-inspired blight spot might open up crevasses in the ground, like deep pits that aren't actually there. Or if you tread right wrongly, you might find out that the floor was quite illusionary there, and then you have plummeted to some great depth in a pit that isn't quite there, or is or isn't, or that sort of thing. Or maybe in this realm, the shadows are kind of deep wells of black that actually do kind of open up ideas or pathways. You can lean on a shadowy wall and fall through the wall and end up on the other side, but your allies can't find you because they had flashlights. Hmm. There's another realm that's more tied to the idea of light and darkness, but kind of the idea of holes and shadows works really well for me here. Hallucinations of the, oh gosh, I I used this word last time, the the sudden drop when you're sleeping. The the Uh, dream. Right, right the next near realm that the book talks about is uh, fractal, which is tied to this implant that lets you redirect energy. So in fractal light is this taffy like substance you can form and shape and things like that. And everything glows except for the baddies that are kind of wreathed in shadows. Like the orcas have pools of shadow they carry along with them. Hmm. And it's kind of hard to idea what to visualize, what a blight spot influenced by this might look like. Um, Uh, In this world, it's very difficult to attack someone because weapons don't really exist per se, but like your memory of a weapon powered by the focus ability, uh, the image of weapon, your willpower basically can be used to attack. But it still kind of has the image, the ideology of weaponry and armor and such. Mm -hmm. Though it's your own personal strength, not actual armaments. So a blight spot informed by this idea, this realm might be a world that's thick with hallucinations and mirages. It's kind of difficult to have spooky bio-horror and energy attacks in the same area. They're kind of alternate concepts. Mm -hmm. But since blight spots tend to be internal, I had the image that maybe instead of like darkness and shadow, you're dealing with overwhelming brightness when you go from room to room, and you're dazzled by point sources and flares and things like that. And Image, your vision is is splotched and blotched by aftermirages and such like, and it's only the shadows that are really dangerous. Enough light is as difficult to work around as impenetrable darkness any mm-hmm. day. Uh, Stifle is the next near realm on the hit parade, and this is the Disintegration Implants alternate realm. Uh-huh. This is a dead universe. It uh, may not have any trace of the Hydra in it, but it's like molecular, uh, like atomic death. There, There is, entropy is such that nothing can exist there because this is like the final heat death of the universe sort of scenario. Uh, and it's also got sort of elements of decay and dust and entropy and things like that. But fundamentally, it's just the, it's a non-energetic realm. Uh-huh. So really, vect- living vectors can't go there unless they can do some sort of astral projection with another implant that lets them manifest a body that's immune to this sort of thing. And again, this doesn't translate too well into the real world because it's such a horrible level of hell. Mm-hmm. But blight spots tend to be about overabundance of life and one that's more tied to decay and deliquiescing flesh and death and putrefication seems pretty easy to imagine. It's just sure, kind of sure. the, the far end of the life curve. I don't know where I'm going with no, that. En- entropy is kind of a
1: spreading monster if you think about it. Yeah,
0: yeah, and What is decay, but another form of life that's just much smaller and stinkier. It's likely that a blight spot influenced by Stifle would be just very, very quiet. Although I think if you're playing it for horror, it'd be very, very quiet, except for uh, something vague breathing in the background or the occasional, but very regular dripping sound. I don't know. Shifting, settling dust. Yeah, yeah. The movement of something that was here, but is no longer. Uh, Stifle as a realm is not visited very often by TTI because it's... It's not haunted, and TTI is superstitious, but only with good reason. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But they're afraid that whatever destroyed that world will follow you into this one as well. So the presence of a blight spot touched by Stifle and touched by this realm might suggest the really big threat of something bigger than Hydra sneaking through a gateway, Hmm. or at least whatever caused that universe to fade, um, trying to make its way in, creating two godlike End of the universe powers in this world, so this sort of realm manifesting might be a time for TTI to get out all the big guns and really go to war mm-hmm. against a one-quarter mile radius area. Hopefully, that doesn't spread. Uh, dreams and images of this entropic godlike
1: force would probably haunt you for days after going through here, if not forever. In one of PC Hodgell's most recent book. Um, she's describing a kind of decay coming across the, the the city that the story is taking place in. And the character is noticing this kind of weak spot in the slate tiles of a roof. And she's realizing that it's covered with tiny little squiggling wood lice except eating the slate. And then the moment passes and the, and the sun hits it again. And it's still decayed, but there's this little little slate sculptures of, of, of lice we- weaving the, frozen in place on top of it.
0: A lot of P.C. Hodgell has this intrusion horror sort of thing happening, Mm -hmm. that sort of alien stuff breaking into a fairly
1: normal world seems to be one of her big tropes. Yeah. And uh, another recurring one in that later novel is pools of water on on the floor that have impossibly large water creatures coming out of them, Mm -hmm. eating people and pulling them under in water that you're sure can't be more than an inch deep, but you can't see the bottom of it. You've stolen a lot from B.C. Hodgel in the I really games. do. She's, she's, she's such a great source. Yeah, endless
0: weird. Vast is another near realm. This one is interesting because Vast is a point in our reality as well as being a near realm. I don't think that quite works mathematically. You know how sometimes bioships go away? Sure. And they don't always return with their passengers? Well, if, if, it, if it doesn't come back, it wasn't yours in the first place, was it? Right, no. Um, they go to the Vast. Uh-huh. Um, this is some distant, distant place beyond the solar system, possibly beyond the stars themselves, where bio ships go when they're scared and panic. Interestingly, a trip to the vast is almost always plot relevant because wherever you go, you're near something important. Hmm. It's kind of driven by plot engines and with some loose protection from plot armor, etc., TTI has gained a lot of wisdom and technology by disappearing into the Vast and appearing right next to something really neat. Hmm. Although that something really neat might be a Nephilim monster. We don't know. It does happen.
1: Well, it's neat if your underlings are uh, right next to it.
0: Vast is tied to the translocation uh, implant, and that is predictably teleportation and, mm-hmm. and such like. Uh, it's kind of, I mean, the Vast is the idea of huge and uncaring nothingness, which is... Good lovecraftian psychological horror, but might not manifest very well in a... So it seems like it'd be kind of hard to tie this vast emptiness into a fairly claustrophobic biological horror location. Mm-hmm. But there's a book that I think does some of this quite well, uh, House of Leaves. Okay. Which, that was the book that I threw across the room for having a very unsatisfying ending.
1: Right. remember that.
0: It does have a dreadfully unsatisfying ending. But leading up to it, it um, before it gets truly alien, it's pretty neat. It interleaves some urban fiction and biographical nonfiction and mystery and ghost story to describe this house that is kind of a horrific extrapolation of the idea of the idea of that it's bigger on the inside. Okay. So it starts out with the filmmaker stumbling across a hallway. That's like 10 feet longer. If you go this way than that way. And he films him walking himself, walking through it. And that's just kind of a parlor trick almost literally. Uh-huh. But from there he finds the, the infinite staircase underneath the house and as he goes down to this area that's vastly bigger and stranger than it possibly could be, there's some sort of extra-dimensional horror that's lurking in the darkness. And we never get a view of it. We just get this kind of roaring in the darkness idea. And it's, if anything else, it's kind of the embodiment of the unknown that attacks him out of the dark. Uh-huh. But that book really does make good use of alien space. Oh, and The Shining. Good point, good point. Has some elements of that as well. It's only a vague and subtle sort of unsettling thing.
1: I, I'm not sure if anybody who did not watch the documentaries on it would ever have noticed the oddities, but but who knows? Who knows? I think uh, it's kind of like a bass
0: drone. It's just a little bit weird uh-huh. that this building seems to spool on forever and ever, which I think you could kind of get the sense for that. that maybe it's... It's a subtle sub-vocal thing, uh-huh. perhaps. But yeah, in the documentary of The Shining, they, sh- they show the little boy on his Tonka tricycle looping the top level of this haunted hotel. And the loop is a fair bit bigger than the architecture of the building should allow. Uh-huh. And that's how House of Leaves begins, more or less. It just goes much stranger places and then goes nowhere satisfying at the end. The payoff, it just is not, let's not go there. You might get some good like one note scares when you open a door and see that it goes to startling black nothingness. Uh Just kind of a vague, vague shape on the horizon of your perception that's going to move towards you very soon. I just don't think it quite translates. And I think the most abstract world they describe in Sound and Silence is writhe, which is a strange social commentary where your ideas are and social norms are these kind of crawling creatures. It's really hard to visualize and it's just, it's like metaphor that you can roll dice in. I, I don't get okay. it. I, it's its very hard to explain. Okay. Um, like everything is kind of this endless pool of wormy critters and like tendril organisms, but it's a metaphor for uh, what society does to you. It's, it's difficult hmm. uh, to explain in 10 words or less. But in an area touched by this, you might find yourself looping on like common tasks like Flipping through some papers or uh, some common day-to-day thing. I remember the halluc- learning about the hallucinatory plant uh, Mad Hatter, which tends to give you like super mundane hallucinations, like right, right, like you'll hallucinate sitting in a chair when you're sitting in a chair. And then people overdose on the drug because they think it's having no effect, but it's having this very banal effect. It's just the most boring drug in existence. <laughs> yeah, but Rye tends to fixate on like some of the commonalities and and mundanities of life in strange ways and getting caught up in little loops of that might be kind of an interesting sort of deja vu-esque element that might play out in one of these areas. But also picking up on people's minds and emotions and such, uh, particularly the darker sides would play well in an
1: area like this. I feel like you're describing that very strange adventure plot plot that Ashtar ran where everybody was a sexy bird. Everybody was a sexy bird. Remember the, the...
0: I do remember. I just... Explaining to our home readers is going to be tricky. (laughs) Yes. Don't don't even try. (laughs) uh, It was a mindscape sort of idea. Yeah, with sexy birds. Ask Ashtar the next time he's on. (laughs) You can talk to him about it. See if he can explain it. (laughs) Uh, One place where this particular blight zone, blight spot, effect might play out well as if you were dealing with an NPC that was a little unhinged or a lot unhinged uh-huh. because as their ideas start unspooling and working their way into the tapestry of the area around you, that can become kind of threatening and you might learn some strange new things. Um, there's a, there are two more realm or two more implants or realms or both that I don't think would play well at all. One of them is um, one of them is glow, which is just kind of the energy of excitation it just it doesn't make sense inside this kind of damp, muggy environment that is a blight spot. And the final one would be Hydra. In a sense, all blight spots kind of take elements of Hydra because they're about life spooling out of control uh-huh. and uncontrolled growth and things like that. And that kind of replication with dark variation is like what Hydra is all about. But... Um, one thing that maybe a hydro touched blight spot might do is it might be more infectious, maybe kind of like blight spots are in second ed in general it's it's a plague that you bring with you the next place you go, um, so you thought you escaped it, but in reality you 're carrying it with you as a as a sort of weird ass typhoid Mary sort of thing. And I think that would carry some of the horror that is Hydra, like the whispers that burst out of your body, even Mm -hmm. though you thought they were long dormant or you never touched them. Anyway, these are just some ideas to kind of broaden light spots a little bit, add a few more pages to a topic that doesn't get a lot of text time. But I do have some some final thoughts on it. Hydra's goal is to kind of taste the world I guess it mm-hmm. wants to. Wants, it may not want anything it may be just a force but the more it touches the more it learns about the more it can do and the more of the world it can extend its reach to right now it's exploring biology and that's what it's done with the whispers blight spots aren't really interactive they're things that happen mm-hmm. um, they're environments for things to happen even Sev kind of describes them as just a structure that lets this doorway come through so, in a sense, it's not it doesn't have the will of Hydra, it doesn't explore it's sort of changed that's been unleashed by a nuclear bomb. It may not be a malicious force in your world. Mm-hmm. It may just be a thing that happens. There's an awful lot of energy in transcendental space, and this is how it pours through. We don't know and the other idea I kind of want to circle back to is the idea of the blight spots are tied to buildings, and I think Again, I'm going to be stretching a little bit, but I think this idea does go back all the way to the beginning of First Ed and the kind of the myth of the Hydra, which is a very technological story. Uh, Hydra originally, in First Ed, appeared in um, the computer virus Hydra. Right, right. And then the next mention of it we hear is when it bursts from the owls, and the main traces we see of them are writing uh, on the walls, the strange cryptic runes on the walls of the enclosure the owls burst free from. And the next mention we have of Hydra is in year 250 or so on Terra, where the last family goes to Terra and they are slaughtered by pale men. And again, there's the writing on the walls uh, and strange glyphs and things like that. And I think of Ashtar's game where we first encountered a Hydra-like thing. This is not canon, it's our campaign, but it was uh, glyphs written on mirrors and behind mirrors and things. All of this energy pours from... A structure. It pours from the monolith on um, Europa, under Europa. And that's a building. It's a shape. It's a non Euclidean shape, but it's still a, a possibly constructed thing. Hmm. And Hydra uses echoes to learn. I mean, it, it, it replicates biology because it's discovered biology. If it learns what a star is, then it can extend its reach through the power of contagion and similarity to all stars. TTI is desperate to keep it from learning more. But possibly if doorways from the other world manifest as real doorways, if this blight extrusion can only take place inside of a structure, maybe this is another aspect of, of Hydra ultimately being bound to built things and constructions and such. I mean, it emerged from a building originally. Perhaps it's tied to the tools of, of a sapient race. In that case, it's a very science fiction organism because it is tied uniquely to constructed things. Uh, It's another thought. Hmm. There comes a time in each man's life when he can't even believe
1: his own eyes. Well, after your description, I don't think I'd want to see it either.
0: That may be all there is to say on this uh, two or three paragraph long topic, which we've expanded well past its normal reach Yeah, uh, I don't have a lot to say on the world of like awesome things from the last couple of weeks because we're still kind of in collapse from the convention but about a month ago I saw a fun article about some newly identified radiation effect in the skies uh, sort of an aurora sort of thing but not quite uh-huh. sort of a pink and green aura that's tied to well, I don't know what excitation of particles with a lot of colors that you don't get in standard aurora borealis So this article I was reading in, um, I think, space.com talks a bit about this phenomenon. And I don't understand it because it's got big words. What I remember, though, is that this kind of pink and green and purple aurora-like display with, like, pretty rose tints and such, it's called the Strong Thermal Emissions Velocity Enhancement Effect, or STEVE. And that's really it. This is a new phenomenon. It's been, well, not new, but it's been recently analyzed, and its name is STEVE. Yeah, it sounds very beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, if I remember to, I'll post pictures of it. It is quite pretty. Steve Steve is lovely.
1: I was going to make reference to the guy with the enormous 40-pound separating uh, scrotum, but I think I'm going to go with your idea instead. <laughs> well, on, on that note,
0: <laughs> enjoy your trick-or-treating, if possible, <laughs> and, and catch the outro line. Intro music is Future Club and outro music is Chronicles, both by Sirius Beat. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Radio Free Demos and may be used in any not-for-profit project with appropriate credit and notification. Check out our website, radiofreedamos.com, that's D-E-I-M-O-S, for more rambling, resources, links to official and fan-driven content, and our full catalog of episodes. And look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play.